Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You. I'm the host Melissa Floyd and today's episode is something really interesting. A friend from high school actually sent me this article. Her family is from Switzerland and uh, she let me know that there was an excellent article written by an expert from Switzerland and he is an epidemiologist and this article was originally printed in June. So this was June 10th originally, but it got published July in July, July 1st, and this is called Coronavirus, Why Everyone Was Wrong. I find it really interesting that a lot of the experts from other countries are able to have a different dialogue as it relates to this whole thing. So in other words, they're a little more free with their interpretations of the data, what the data means, what we should be concerned about, what we don't need to be concerned about, etc. A lot of what we see in American publications in the media kind of all say one thing. And God forbid you're one of those people who comes out against that narrative, you're, you know, of course, immediately attacked. We talked about this with Dr. Scott Jensen on one of the previous episodes, and he mentioned John Ioannidis, which is mentioned also by this particular epidemiologist. So um, we've ha- we've seen people from different countries, you know, Sweden, Nordic countries, in Germany, and even in the UK that have really spoken out against the narrative that we are seeing as it relates to coronavirus. And that narrative is, this is an extremely deadly virus. If we do not take extreme measures that are long-standing, like lockdown, shelter in place, closing down of businesses, prohibiting the gathering of people in public places like churches or other places, mandating mask wearing, and closing down schools. Okay, so these are all the very, very strong measures that they've taken so far. And this was all supposed to be just a couple of weeks, right? And this was back in middle of March. We are now in August, and there really doesn't seem to be a light at the end of this tunnel, which is really scary for me and for others, right? Because we don't really see when it's going to end and what else is going to be implemented or changed in the process. Because a lot of people are seeing the public like strangely compliant, you know, I mean, we've seen a shift in the last couple of months. A lot less people are willing to go along with everything and are questioning some things because the longer this goes, the more experts that are saying, hey, I don't think this is what they told us it is. We're seeing a little bit of a change. But overall, the public is being very compliant. And this mask debate is just another version of the vaccine debate. And it's just gotten extremely polarizing and aggressive and all of it. And it all comes down to certain facts. The entire reason we locked down was based on certain facts. The reason that they are closing down schools based on facts. The reason we are going to implement these universal mask mandates based on certain facts. Now their facts, they just hashtag because science. 
They don't actually give them to you, but you're just supposed to believe them because they are the, quote, expert. And our political leaders are supposed to be consulting the experts so that when we hear our political leaders talk about it, we sort of assume that it's got to be based on actual facts. But it seems that the facts that are being used to rationalize these policies, not only can we tell anecdotally that they don't make sense, but turns out there's a lot of data that really shows they don't make sense. And other leaders in other countries, other epidemiologists and researchers and scientists and virologists and doctors and things in other countries have been questioning this early on. So here is one article from one guy. I'm going to read some of my favorite parts and kind of discuss a little bit about it. And then um, you, I'm giving you the title so that you'll be able to find it yourself. And he brings up a lot of really good points, um, stuff that I think is really, really necessary to get the information out. So please make sure to share this with people that you know, because somebody might say, well, who are you? Well, listen, don't worry about my opinion on this. I'm literally sharing expertise from people who are in the field that deal with this. Okay, an epidemiologist literally studies epidemics and how things like viruses and bacteria, the, the path that they take, how they spread across a population, and how to contain them. That's their job. So don't give me the whole, well, this guy's not valid, or now he's a quack doctor because he doesn't agree with you. This guy has the same credentials, if not more, than the average person telling you we need to stay home to save lives. Okay, so this is important. Share with somebody you know. And a quick side note before I get into this, I love doing this kind of research and putting this kind of time into a podcast. It might not seem like a podcast takes that much time, but finding people to interview and dedicating time to interview them and then the editing process, which is just to make everything sound more fluid for you, not so much to take out content because I like leaving it all in there. But the process of editing, I mean, I am, as you guys know, I am full-time stay-at-home mom with two little ones. And... The process of this takes a lot of time, and I really do love it, as well as continuing to provide information on my social media accounts where I break down articles or write little summaries or do video posts, etc. All of this is completely voluntary. I'm not getting paid for a single cent of this. The reason I mention that is there is an option on this podcast, and the link in the, in the description of each episode will take you right to it where you can sponsor the podcast, which is like giving a little donation. It could be $2 a month. It could be $5 a month, which adds up to 25 bucks in a year, right? Or 60 bucks in a year. But if I'm able to do that with the supporters that I have, I can actually keep myself from having to do other full-time work in order to pay the bills, which is something that I'm needing to do at this point in my life. So if you feel so inclined where you think, you know what, I like this content, I want to contribute $5, $10, a dollar, whatever it is every month to keep information coming, I would love that and love you for that. Um, that would really help me be able to dedicate time to this, um, which I'm already doing, but it would definitely make it easier and allow me to even do more. So I know a lot of people aren't even aware of that option. Again, it's the link in the description of each episode. There'll be a link that'll take you right to it. And, you know, a couple bucks a month isn't a lot for somebody. But if several supporters are doing it, that adds up. And that would really make things easier on me. Because as I 
move forward, having to take a full-time job would give me less time to do this. And I really like what I'm doing. And I like the group that follows me and the conversations we have. It's such a great group. My supporters, you guys are amazing. And I would love to be able to really dedicate as much time as I can to kind of exposing some of the stuff and discussing some of the stuff and breaking it down. And it's just a little bit impossible to do that completely as things stand right now. So I would greatly appreciate that if you feel so inclined. Okay, sorry for that. On to the article. So the name of this article is called Coronavirus, Why Everyone Was Wrong. The original article was published in a Swiss magazine. This was June 10th. So the author, Beta Stadler, okay, this guy, the former director of the Institute for Immunology at the University of Bern. He's a biologist and a professor, okay? He is an important medical professional in Switzerland, okay? So this is a little bit about him, his background, his credentials. He's a biologist. He's a director of, a former director of the Institute for Immunology. So he's considered very important in Switzerland, Okay, because of his expertise. So just keep that all in mind as he goes into this discussion on title, Why Everyone Was Wrong About Coronavirus. Okay. And one of the things that he says too is, you know, this is his opinion on how things should be handled in each individual place. It's not a universal approach, but he is an advocate for, quote, looking at real data rather than abstract models. And I think that's definitely where we have gotten into some trouble. Every single article that I see, like I just saw an article yesterday, um, estimates say that we could save 30,000 lives if everybody wore a mask. Where do these estimates come from? A model. They come from the IHME models, the Washington-based models funded by the Gates Foundation. Okay, these are the same people that overestimated all the people that would die. And, and, and basically as a foundation for our lockdown policies in the United States. So models, to me, this entire pandemic, models have been the death of us. They have literally destroyed so much of our society by using models and not data. And you've got the head epidemiologist, the state epidemiologist in Sweden saying, hey, our policy needs to be based on evidence, we need evidence-based policy, not models, not hypotheses, not conjecture, not guessing, not guesswork. And this is all we're seeing in the, in the United States. It's embarrassing. I mean, truly, truly, the way we have handled this, and please do not get started on the reason that we've done such a poor job is because of Trump. That's a different podcast for a different day, but it just doesn't make sense. Um, I understand people have a strong dislike for the guy, but he is not the reason why we're having this issue. In fact, everybody's state governor has handled this the way that they have, and most of them have gone against the protocol of the federal government, which was originally saying, hey, let's get back to work. We've done this for two weeks. In fact, they extended it to four weeks. Let's get back to work. And they um, instead locked down longer, closed businesses longer, um, and now are putting forward these different you know, mandates and you know, spending ridiculous amounts of money on things for a virus that has such a high recovery rate, not like 60% high, not 70% high, but 99.5% and higher high. That's 
ridiculously high. The, uh, the lengths that we are going to for this virus is mind boggling. And I think that's why most epidemiologists are looking at this going, this is a virus that cycles like every other virus. What are we doing? This is full on panic mode for what? For what? Okay, so he goes into um, a couple of the main reasons why he thinks everybody's done this wrong. And this is what he says. He says, firstly, it was wrong to claim that this virus was novel. Okay, so you remember the way that they're describing this is the novel coronavirus. Novel means never before seen, new, completely unique. He said it was wrong to claim that this virus was novel. And he'll go into why. Secondly, it was even more wrong to claim that the population did not already have some sort of immunity against the virus. And thirdly, it was the crowning of stupidity to claim that someone could have COVID-19 without any symptoms at all and be able to pass the disease without showing any symptoms whatsoever. Now, that is a huge issue right now. Asymptomatic transmission. This is a problem. I just designed some new COVID cards. So like my VaxFax cards, but COVID cards. Three bullet points with more discussion about each of those on the back. And one of these addresses asymptomatic transmission. Asymptomatic transmission, Dr. Bob and I covered that on the vaccine conversation as well, because this is literally being used to create the lockdown policy. It's literally being used to keep kids out of school and to promote this universal widespread use of masks because they are saying you can have no symptoms at all, be completely healthy, but secretly you're passing the illness to other people and you're killing them. How selfish of you to do such a thing. But this has always struck me as something that was really odd. Thinking you have zero symptoms, really? Like for five, six, seven months, no symptoms, but really you could just be passing this along? That just doesn't make sense to me. I think what's more likely to be the case is either people are pre-symptomatic or people have very mild symptoms and they don't really think about that as, as something that was indicative of an illness because most people experience this very mildly. That does not mean you're completely healthy and it does not mean you have the capability of being infectious in real life, in real life, in actual data. So we know the World Health Organization came out to say that asymptomatic transmission is extremely rare. And the representative for the World Health Organization got reamed for saying that because once people understood that there really is no asymptomatic transmission, then what are we doing? There was a lot of anger at that moment. So she came back and tried to backpedal. I think I've talked about that once before uh, on this podcast. But anyway, so those are the three points this guy talks about in here. He's going to break it down. First point, is this a novel virus? Is this actually a new virus? He says, now that we are talking about developing a vaccine against this virus, we suddenly see studies that show that this so-called novel virus is very strongly related to SARS-1 as well as other beta coronaviruses, which make us all suffer every year in the form of colds. So again, what we know is COVID-19 is describing the illness from the virus named SARS-CoV-2. So when you see those two different terms, they're not interchangeable. COVID-19 refers to the illness you experience, 
and SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. It's a sister virus to SARS-CoV-1, which came out in 2002-2003. Now, since that time, they have tried to make a vaccine for SARS-CoV-1 and had no success. That's 17 years ago. Okay, they have also had no success at creating a vaccine for any virus in the coronavirus family because they mutate frequently. Other coronaviruses mutate even more frequently than the SARS-CoV viruses. But SARS-CoV-2 is just another one, a different, slightly different variation. But what he is saying is, he says, quote, apart from the homologies in the sequence between the different coronaviruses, scientists currently work on identifying a number of areas on the virus in the same way as human immune cells identify them. So this is no longer now about the genetic relationship, but it's how our immune system sees the virus, i.e. which parts of the other coronaviruses could potentially be used in a vaccine. So he's saying it doesn't really matter how different genetically as you look at the coding of each of these viruses are, what matters is whether or not this is going to be triggering some level of T cell immunity in your body based on prior experience and exposure to other coronaviruses in the coronavirus family. He says, so SARS-CoV-2 isn't all that new, but merely a seasonal cold virus that mutated and disappears in the summer as all cold viruses do which is what we're observing globally right now. Flu viruses, he said, mutate significantly more, by the way, and nobody would ever claim that a new flu virus strain was completely novel. So why is it important that he's breaking down the fact that this is not novel? Isn't this just semantics? What difference does it make, right? Here's why. Because when we see our, quote, medical experts flip-flopping on their advice, the reason that they back up why they can do this is because this is new. We don't know how this virus operates. We don't know what this is doing. We're still learning so much about it, right? This is the thing you hear Fauci say, because Dr. Fauci says masks don't work. They're not necessary. They'll increase the transmission because of people touching their face. Then all of a sudden, it's masks need to be worn everywhere all the time. For somebody who has worked in infectious disease for decades, how could they make such a transition in such a short amount of time? His answer, we're still learning about this. It's a novel virus. And so that's why this particular epidemiologist from Switzerland is talking about the fact that this is actually not novel and why that's so important. Okay, so, and he's right. The flu virus is mutating every single year, so much so that they need a different vaccine for it. Well, Fauci and Bill Gates have also said that this particular vaccine would only, for COVID, would only give you a few months worth of protection. And after that, you'd have to get one basically every single year at minimum. So we know that being part of that coronavirus family and like lots of viruses, there's a lot of mutation that can happen. So this is not that different, you know, in that sense. And also, with all the data they have on SARS-CoV-1, like I said, 17 years worth of data, they have to have a very good understanding of how this virus works. Even if it's an estimation, everything I saw in late January, early February, based on its relationship to SARS-CoV-1 and the research I looked through that, 
really predicted the same stuff we're seeing with this. So it, it did not totally change course from the data that was already there. For them to sit there and say, this is all brand new, we know nothing about it, it's really erroneous for them to say that. And it feels like that's just their rationalization for why they keep changing their policy and, and policy decisions. So number two, he says, from the World Health Organization to every Facebook virologist, everyone claimed that this virus was particularly dangerous because there was no immunity, right? That's the other part of it being a novel virus. If it's novel, we've never experienced before. So it's going to be so much harder on our system, so much harder on the population because we have no immunity. And he mentions Fauci. He says, even Anthony Fauci, the most important advisor in the Trump administration, noted at the beginning that the danger of this virus was in the fact that there was no immunity against it. He says, Tony, which is Fauci, and I often sat next to each other at immunology seminars at the National Institute of Health in the United States because we worked in related fields back then. He said, so for a while, I was pretty uncritical of his statements because he was a respectable colleague of mine. But... Then the penny dropped when he realized that the very first commercially available antibody test for SARS-CoV-2, which is this coronavirus, was put together from an old antibody test for SARS-1. So let me say that again. The very first commercially available antibody test for this was based on the antibody test for SARS-CoV-1. So if they are not that related, then how could you use an antibody test that is meant to detect a prior version of this from 17 years ago? So when he realized that, that, that that's what they were doing for the antibodies, he realized, okay, there's not that much variation between these viruses. He said it also became known that SARS-CoV-2 had a less significant impact in areas of China where they previously saw SARS-1. He said, so this is clear evidence suggesting that our immune system considers SARS-1 and SARS-2 partially identical and that one virus could probably protect us from the other. Now, if that's true, again, they've had 17 years of data to use to understand the patterns. The only difference that I've heard of as it relates to the two different viruses is that one replicates in the nose when the other replicates in the lungs. And SARS-CoV-2, which is what we're dealing with now, replicates in the nasal passageways, which is why it's a little bit more contagious. SARS-CoV-1 replicates in the lung tissue, which makes it harder to pass to somebody because you have to be having deep coughing episodes. And that's why it sort of kind of just faded out on its own. It wasn't as easily transmitted between people. So he says, that's when I realized that the entire world simply claimed that there was no immunity, right? Because it's a novel virus. But in reality, nobody had a test ready to prove that statement. He said that wasn't science, but pure speculation based on a gut feeling that was parroted by everyone. He said to this day, there isn't a single antibody test that can describe all possible immunological situations, and then he says, back in April, there was work that was published by a group, um, 30 authors, and that included um, a, a well-known virologist. And what they show, this is in Berlin, uh, in Germany, they show that 34% of people in Berlin who had never been in contact with SARS-CoV-2 
showed T cell immunity against it. Okay, so T cell immunity is a different kind of immune reaction, which I will go on to explain here. But he basically says this means that our T cells, the white blood cells, detect common structures on the SARS-CoV-2 and regular cold viruses and therefore combat both of them. So we're talking about a third of people in Berlin that were never in contact with this virus. We're showing immunity to it. Immune, which means they're not a risk to everybody else in society. Like you don't, you don't necessarily, what they're saying here is you don't necessarily have to have had the virus in order to be safe to everyone around you because you may already have immunity, which means you're never going to be infectious. This is so key to understand. Recently, they also came out saying uh, this theory that basically only 10 to 20% of people need to have exposure to this virus and to develop a herd immunity that will stop outbreaks in our population. 10 to 20%. That is way lower, way lower than the 60, 70% that's usually estimated. And they're saying the reason is because there is some level of recognized immunity from other viruses in the coronavirus family. And this study in Berlin is another example a third of the people never exposed already had immunity and, again, would not be at risk to anyone else. But when you've got these universal mask mandates, they're basically going to say, you need to wear this mask all the time everywhere because you could be a risk to somebody. And you've got a third of those people who already have immunity. And then you probably have another third of them that have been exposed and have developed antibodies. So at most, maybe you've got 30% of the population that hasn't gotten it yet, and they're not going to be constantly exposed in every situation and be infectious to everybody. I mean, this is just overkill what we're doing based on what the data is actually showing us. So he says that there's a study by John Ioannidis. And like I said, um, Dr. Scott Jensen talks about him a lot. And I had looked over his stuff early on um, because he was one of the few people to step out and kind of say, we're doing this wrong. He's from Stanford. And it says, according to the Einstein Foundation in Berlin, that John Ioannidis is one of the world's 10 most cited scientists, one of the 10 most, okay? So John Ioannidis with his Stanford study showed that immunity against the SARS-CoV-2 virus measured in the form of antibodies is much higher than previously thought. Now, this was part of the original studies that showed that a huge portion of the population had likely been exposed to this, but we didn't know because two reasons. One, nobody knew about this virus earlier on in November, December, January, um, before anybody was testing. And um, also because the people that go to report their cases are usually the strong cases, the cases that need to seek medical care. I've mentioned this a lot because when you're calculating mortality rates, you have to understand the total number of cases. You cannot just count deaths divided by cases reported. That is actually not clear and that is not accurate because what you need to include for the denominator is the total number of cases within a population. But so many people had a mild cold that they didn't even know was coronavirus or COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, that those numbers are not being recorded. And so our mortality rates are way higher than they actually are. And the Stanford study, Santa Clara and USC studies were the first ones to look at 
testing an entire random sampling of the population to see how many people had actually been exposed. He was one of the first ones to show that, wait, we've got a much bigger group of people that are already exposed and therefore safe to be within society. And Ioannidis, he says here, he's not a conspiracy theorist, obviously, but he got criticized, very severely criticized because he was, quote, downplaying this entire pandemic. But obviously, if you realize a much larger, 10 to 25 times the amount of people that are reporting their cases are not reporting their mild cases. When you realize that, that's good news. But yet, when you give this kind of good news, people criticize you. They criticize you for downplaying it instead of understanding, wow, that's a good thing. That means we're not as bad off as we thought we were, which, again, should be a good thing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode of What They Aren't Telling You. Lots more to come. Thank you guys for listening, and I will catch you next time on What They Aren't Telling You.